The following is a message by Dr. Howell Jones of Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about this message or Westminster Seminary, visit us online at westcal.edu or call us at 760-480-8474. That's online at wscal.edu or call us at 760-480-8474. We bow in thy presence, O Lord our God, join with those who have journeyed before us from captivity in this wilderness of a world into thy presence. And we anticipate the rest of our pilgrimage depending on thy grace and protecting care and exult in our safe arrival in thy presence where we will dwell with all who have trusted in the name of thy Son, from every age and place, forevermore. We thank thee for such a hope and certainty, and that thou wilt reign supreme and triumphant over all, sin and Satan included. Fill our hearts then with joy and peace. Nerve our arm for the fight. Clarify our understanding so that we might press on to the goal for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Sustain us all and our brothers and sisters throughout the earth. Uh, remember those who are in particular need at this time of thine aid, those who are unwell undergoing medical treatment, those who have been bereaved, those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Grant us all to know that we dwell beneath the shadow of the throne of thy Son, our Savior, the Lord of all, to whom all authority in heaven and earth has been given, who will reign and cannot be dethroned until all his enemies be made his footstool. Hear us, receive our thanks, pardon our sins, grant thy blessing with thy word for Jesus' sake. Amen. Let us hear some words from Scripture. The second epistle of Peter, chapter 3, verse 8 to verse 13. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. May God bless to us his word. Peter re-echoes, as does the Apostle John, 
the statements and declarations of the prophet Isaiah that we've been considering from Isaiah 24 and through 27. In those chapters, we have a revelation of the end of all things given to Isaiah and to his people, and particularly to the remnant, uh, for their comfort of faith. Uh, the end will come because the one who made the beginning will step in, intervene, to judge and to save finally and consummately. And in the 24th chapter, which we've been considering, the focus is more on judgment than on salvation, symbolized by the fact that silence is frequently referred to there in order to indicate the termination of all that the world trusts and boasts in. But salvation is touched on here and there too. And by way of contrast, chapters 25 through 27 uh, reverse the degree of attention given to these two themes. 25 through 27 focusing more on salvation than on judgment. But there's more here than a revelation of the future. There's a response to it. And we haven't considered the response so far, and that is what we begin to focus on today. And so I direct your attention to verses 14 through 16 of Isaiah 24, which read as follows. They lift up their voices. They sing for joy over the majesty of the Lord. They shout from the west. Therefore, in the east, give glory to the Lord. In the coastlands of the sea, give glory to the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. From the ends of the earth, we hear songs of praise, of glory to the righteous one. But I say, I waste away, I waste away, woe is me, for the traitors have betrayed, with betrayal the traitors have betrayed. Here is a response that we are to express, not merely a revelation, a record that we are to believe. And the response set before us here is as authoritative as the record that is given to us of what yet will be. And as the Apostle Peter has just reminded us, uh, these things are disclosed in advance and recorded not for our speculation, but for our sanctification. What manner of persons ought we to be in all godliness and holiness looking for, waiting expectantly for, and making our way hurriedly towards the coming of the day of the Lord. So how Isaiah responds here is relevant to us and indeed authoritative for us. There are two things to note. He takes up a song and makes a lament. And there's no contradiction between those two things. We'll only have time to look at the first this morning. But bear the second in mind, because the two are correlative. 
It is because of what is rejoiced in not being as yet a reality that he goes on to lament the fact that he and his people are not yet as they one day will be. Let's think then of this song that he hears and in which he desires to join. It's remarkable, isn't it, that silence should be succeeded by singing. The verses that precede this this 14th verse describes silence time and time again. The world is in its shroud, in its grave. You think of the place that singing and music has in our age today and anticipate the fact that one day it will all come to an end. People can't go anywhere, do anything without these things in their ears plugged to their own individual selection of music. And music, of course, is of diverse sorts and it has diverse effects, doesn't it? It can be bass and stir the flesh or it can be noble and stir the spirit. But of whatever kind it is, one day there will not be a squeak heard. Silence, total, except for the song of the redeemed. The song of those who will have survived the end of all things. They're described here in verse 13 like the gleanings of the harvest. And in this setting, the field is the world. And the gleanings are the redeemed. And Isaiah hears these singers from the west, the sea literally, and he calls upon others in the east to join in, not merely Jews, and yet all of them, you note, are praising the one true and living God who made himself known to Israel, to the Jews. But here is an enlargement of that community. Here is the international choir that the Apostle John glimpsed and heard. A multitude that no one could number from every kindred, tribe, and tongue and nation standing around the throne and singing praise and glory to the Lamb. And that song takes precedence, doesn't it? over all our national anthems. Now, he doesn't only hear this. He wants to join in, but as has been hinted, he's hindered and prevented by the fact that there's something that he calls his leanness, which he attributes to the plundering, criminal activity of traitors. And therefore, all he can do 
is to call upon those whom he hears in vision by the disclosure of God to call on them to sing on, not to stop. It's as if he can't sing, but he wants to sing. And that's implied, I think, in, in the verb glory. In verse 15, therefore in the east, give glory or glorify. It's in the plural. He's addressing people, telling them who are singing not to stop, to sing on, sing up, sing louder, don't stop. He wants to join in. Do we want to join in? Have we heard in our spirits, our minds and hearts, strains and snatches of the only song that will be sung throughout eternity? And we've already learned it in part through the gospel and God's grace and a sight of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ who died for this international company one by one and who is intent on gathering them and bringing them home to heavenly Zion. There are two themes or two stanzas to this song. The first is in verse 14. Majesty. The majesty of the Lord. And the second is in verse 16. The beauty of his people. The majesty of the Lord and the beauty of his people. The word that's used here for majesty is a, is a term that Isaiah uses in the context of all opposition to God. It means to inflate. It's used in the context of arrogant protest, Resistance, all as a result of the pride that puffs up. It's there frequently in Isaiah 2. Moab in chapter 16 is described by means of this word. And you can, it's a, it's a graphic term, isn't it? You know, we, we see people who give themselves airs and graces. And they're out to create an impression. That's what nations do against our God and his Christ. That's what rulers do. That's what legislators do. And it isn't only the non-Christian world that does it. Chapter 28, where Ephraim, the people of God, are referred to, they're described in terms of this boasted pomp and show that is endemic and universal. Now, having used the term frequently in that sort of way, what Isaiah does here is this. He says there's going to be time when God is going to stand up. He's not going to be small and negligible. He's not going to be easily dismissed and derided. As he often is, he is going to make himself present. That's why we were singing, stand up. It indicates that it's as if God has been small, as if he's been brought to his knees. 
by the scorn and derision of sinful men and women. It hasn't happened really, has it? Because it can't happen. But that it should even seem like that is something that should stir our spirits and consequently enable us to stand up and rejoice that the day is coming when the one who alone is God will manifest that he alone is God. And all the idols and all the false religion will be scattered to the winds. There'll not be an atheist. There'll not be an agnostic. On that day, he alone will be glorified. And this is the first verse of the hymn, of the song. The majesty of Jehovah will be a theme of praise and rejoicing. Aren't you glad about that? Isn't he worthy of that? Don't you want to lift up your voice and shout for joy? That is going to happen. That's the first verse. The second is this, the beauty of the Lord's people. Now here's, here's a rare word and there's a discussion as to whether the righteous one here refers to God or collectively to his people. I take the view that it refers to his people in order to do justice to the contrast with my leanness that follows. But whatever. It's certainly true, isn't it? That when the Lord arises, he glorifies his people. He doesn't merely claim the glory that is due, but he shares it with each and every one who trusts in him. Here's the beginning of our real honor. It does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Your best life now? No, can't be. Because it's when he reveals his majesty that his church will get their beauty, isn't it? Can't be before. When he exalts himself, he exalts them. When he takes his power and reigns, by that same authority, graves will yield up their corpses and bodies will be glorified of all who trusted him. Then we'll be healthy and happy and wealthy. Not before, but then, forever. That's why he wants to sing. Do you want to sing? Well, we ought to be able to do better than Isaiah did. Because, of course, the king has come. And because he has triumphed. And because the day is fixed, he's been raised from the dead. We are in a much more advantageous position. 
than Isaiah ever was. But it's still the same song. And it's still the same God. Theirs and ours. But one day we'll do even better than we can do now. And then forever. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.